Well, good morning, New Hope. So glad that you're here with us personally in person and whether you're online, it's so good to have you with us. Thank you for coming to be a part of New Hope Community Church. So thrilled that you are here today. We are starting a new series called Money Mandates, Change is Possible. And I know in the church world, whenever we talk about money. People sometimes get disgruntled or they think like, oh, they're always talking about money in church and that kind of thing. And, and part of the reason that we cover the topic of money typically once a year or maybe certainly every two years is because Jesus talked about money. God talked about money. He talked about finances. He talked about possessions. And so here at New Hope Community Church, we want to bring the, the full teachings of God in his word. And our finances, our possessions, our approach to that is part of God's word. And so we want to look at that over this next month and recognize in our lives, maybe there's at least one area that you may need to change. Because in every area of our life, in Jesus Christ, change is possible. And so I want to start out asking three questions of us this morning. What percentage of what you buy is what you need to what you want? What is it you wanted so bad? It tempted you or moved you to get it in an unethical way or an unhealthy way, where maybe it caused friction in marriage, or put your family on edge financially, or you in a personal tough spot. How much have you sought God's approach to money and material possessions in your own personal life? Over a century ago, Russell Conwell was a famous traveling lecturer. He was born in Massachusetts in 1843, and during the Civil War, he was a Union Army captain. After the war, he became a lawyer and then eventually a Baptist minister who traveled around and gave lectures. Conwell told of an ancient Persian Ali Hafid, who owned a very large farm with orchards and grain fields and beautiful pastures, gardens. Ali was contented because he was wealthy. And he was wealthy because he was contented. One day, Ali entertained a guest who told him about diamonds and that Ali could be so rich if only he owned a diamond mine. Well, that night, Ali Hafid went to bed a poor man. He hadn't lost anything, but he was a poor man because he was discontented. Craving a mine of diamonds, he sold the farm to search for these rare stones. He traveled the world over, finally becoming poor, broken, 
And so dejected, he threw himself into the sea. One day, the man who purchased Ali Hafid's farm led his camel out into the garden for a drink. As his camel put its nose into the brook, the man saw a flash of light from the sands of the stream. He pulled out a stone, and that stone had all the hues and colors of a rainbow. The man had discovered the mine of Galconda, the most magnificent diamond mine in the world. Had Ali Hafid remained at home and dug in his own garden, he would have had acres of diamonds instead of losing his life in a foreign land. And so what's the moral of this story for us here today? The more we want from a human perspective, the less we have. The more wealth we want and lust for, the more our soul wanes and loses. Today, as we start this money mandate series, I want us to start with the topic of clutching contentment. Clutching contentment. You know, I think we're really good at clutching money and possessions, but not very good at clutching or even thinking about being content. I ended the opening story with the moral, the more we want from a human perspective, the less we have. The more wealth we want and lust for, the more our souls wane and loses. The Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy challenges us and teaches us about this whole idea of pursuing contentment instead of pursuing cash and collateral in our lives. In 1 Timothy 6, 6 and 7, he says this, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Boy, do you want great gain in your life? Pursue godliness and contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. I think we all understand that, right? But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. You know, the daily bread. You know, the biblical books, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, are written by the Apostle Paul, and he's writing to his mentee, Timothy, who is a young man. And he's writing him these instructions. He's teaching them. He's trying to lead him on what does it look like to live as God has called us to live. And so he challenges him and he says, pursue godliness and contentment, young Timothy, because it's great gain for your life. So with Ali Hafid, we learned our soul you know, our overall well-being, the level of peace for our life loses when we keep lusting for more and more want. 
But here the apostle Paul writes to Timothy about how we can actually gain in our life. And we gain by pursuing godliness first, and then secondly, contentment in our life. And what is godliness? Godliness is this reverence, it's this respect for God, our creator, which produces this tender heart towards God, which produces then this idea of wanting to be obedient to God and want to live right before him. And so Paul says to Timothy, pursue godliness in your life. Because when you pursue godliness, you'll pursue how to live rightly. And secondly, he says from that, pursue contentment. And contentment for our lives has two aspects to it. The first one is sufficiency for the necessities of life. You know, the, the daily bread needs of our day-to-day life, our needs. That's where Paul said, hey, if we have food and clothing, man, we're good. If we have shelter, we're good. You know, if we have a vehicle that, hey, it actually runs at 25 below zero, <laughs> we're good, right? It's amazing. Be content with what you have. And secondly, contentment is this mind where you're contented with your lot, with your situation. The Apostle Paul writes to the church in Philippi about this whole idea of contentment and learning it. He says in Philippians 4, 11 and 12, I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in every and any situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. You see, Paul is a man who understands what it means to grow up and live in wealth. He comes from a wealthy family. He's incredibly educated. He was educated under the famous professor Gamaliel. And he was educated at an Ivy League school like Yale or Harvard. He was a wealthy man. We know that because he was a Roman citizen as a Jew. And if you were a Roman citizen as a Jew, you had money because the only way as a Jew, to be a Roman citizen is that you had to buy, you had to purchase your Roman citizenship. And only those who were wealthy, wealthy family, could do that. And so he had this incredible education. He had connections. He had much wealth. But when he wrote this to the church in Philippi about learning to be content, he's in prison. And not prison like we have here, where you get three square meals a day, there's heat, you have clothing. No, he's in a prison that is underground, little light. He's chained 24-7 to a Roman soldier. He maybe gets one meal a day, and typically in those days, if you were fed, your friends or family had to drop it in. They're brutalized. It is not good. And yet he's writing here and he's saying, listen, regardless of my wealth or my chains, 
I have figured out how to be content, how to be satisfied. When it comes to our faith, it is crucial to remember that our contentment is not determined by our circumstances. Contentment is determined by what we believe. And this is Paul's challenge to us by what we believe. And he's saying, hey, I've learned to be content regardless. I've learned that regardless, God knows my situation, right? The story is told about a pilot who always looked down intently on a certain valley in the Appalachian Mountains as the plane flew over those mountains. One day, his co-pilot asked him, you know, what's so interesting about that spot that every time we fly over, your eyes hanging over and, and looking out the window at that spot? And the pilot replied, you see that stream down there? You know, when I was a kid, I used to sit down there on a log and I used to fish. Every time an airplane flew overhead, I would look up and wish I was flying. But now, I wish I was down there fishing. <laughs> you know, it's always tempting to think that others have it better or to look to another situation. And if we just had a little more or a little different situation, that everything in our life would be just fine, right? Don't we think that way? But contentment cannot be achieved by just increasing possessions or just automatically changing our location at all. Because in our lives, I think we've all learned Nothing is ever enough. There's no there, right? How many times have we said, oh, once I get there, once I get that job, once I buy that home, once I get that car, once I have this much in savings, there's no there. Because we're never satisfied. We're not content. We, we haven't figured it out. We wrestle with it all the time. You know, it always amazes me that uh, people who climb Mount Everest take two months to climb to the top of Mount Everest and the average amount of time that they spend at the top is 30 minutes. <laughs> I mean, it takes them two months to get there. They're up there 30, oh, there it is. <laughs> there it is. Let's go, right? And then they're off climbing something else, right? Figuring something else out. But it's so true in our lives, because we have this challenge of being content. Why does our heart become so discontent? Well, obviously, we live in a society. We live in a world that has everyday marketing that communicates to us that we're not okay in what we wear or how we look or what we drive or where we live or even where we work, right? I mean, you see LinkedIn commercials. You know, you see all kinds of commercials like you should work here, you should do that, you could do more, you could do this. I mean, no commercial ever comes on and tells me, hey, hold on to that 
2002 Suburban you're driving with the 260,000 miles and the rust falling off when you go through, you know, and get it washed and that. Hold on to that, buddy. You look good in that. I haven't seen that commercial for my Suburban yet at all. Nor have I seen like, hey, you just know how to dress. You know, I mean, those flannels. I mean, you got it going, dude. Stay with the flannels and the, the tan pants, you know. It's all right. The boots from Goodwill. Yeah. You know, I, was, I mean, I haven't seen the commercial yet or whatever it is. Even what I eat, you name it, right? Every day, billboards, radio commercials, commercials on TV and all that, they're telling us what we aren't so that we will be discontented people. I'll never make enough. I'll never look good enough. I'll never wear enough. I'll never drive enough. I'll never save enough. Whatever it is, vacation enough. You name it, I don't got it, right? There's this lie out there that the more I have, the merrier I'll be, right? The more I have, the merrier I'll be. That's just this lie out there. John Piper, the pastor who was down at Bethlehem Baptist in the cities, says this about sin. It gets its power by persuading me to believe that I will be more happy if I follow it. If I follow it. The power of all temptation is the prospect that it will make me happier. Right? It'll make me happier. I mean, is more wrong? Is wanting something wrong? No. But our values at times can slowly dissolve. A number of years ago, there was a popular program called the Goldbergs. In one episode, Jake Goldberg came home from supper and excitedly told his wife, Molly, about this great idea he had. He wanted to go into business, and Molly had put some money away for just a a time like this, and so she gave it to him as they sat at the dinner table, enthusiastically discussing the future. Jake said, Molly, someday be eating off of plates of gold. And Molly looked over and replied, Jake, darling, is the food going to taste any better? But we have this deception, right? This fallacy. And this is why Paul gives Timothy and us this warning In 1 Timothy, verses 8 through 10, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap, a snare, and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the path and pierced themselves with many griefs. I mean, think about a a financial choice or decision that you made throughout your life that pierced you, that grieved you, that caused anxiety in your life because I wanted that. But then it put you in a position 
where it was harmful, where it kept you up at night. Or maybe you had to figure something out to get it that really wasn't correct. And so what is Paul saying here to Timothy? Eagerness to be rich makes us do things that usually we wouldn't do. It is extremely difficult to cherish the desire to be rich as the leading purpose of your soul, of your life, and to be an honest man or woman. I mean, if that's your number one goal, it's difficult to do it in an ethical way. When we have swallowed the temptation that we must be rich to be happy, we will then be open to a thousand temptations to the means to get there. Did you hear that? When we have swallowed the temptation that we must be rich to be happy, we will then be open to a thousand different temptations to the means to how I'm going to get there. These temptations then lead to ruin and destruction, piercing oneself with many griefs. Wanting to accomplish more and to earn more is not wrong. But here's our challenge. (laughs) Here's our challenge. We are driven people, right? We're driven people. But because of our sin, we can be driven towards the wrong things. That's our challenge. So Paul warns us, right? Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith, piercing themselves with many griefs. There can be griefs because of that. You know, I remember way back when I was young, third grade, Monona Grove, just outside of Madison, lived there. And we have had the local pool down below where I lived. And as a third grader, I'd go to the pool, and one day I was tempted, and I started stealing money out of the lockers of other kids because I wanted money for the concession stand. Didn't have it. And it was easy. No locks back then. Money sitting in kids' shorts under their towels that they put in the locker. And I stole that money, and I bought all this concession for myself, and I lived large. But it ruined me. It grieved my experience going to the pool every day. Because now when I went to the pool to with my friends, I couldn't enjoy it because I was wondering and looking. Wonder if anybody here saw me. Wonder if they say, hey, that kid was in there right when I left and then my money was gone. And so every time I went to the pool, I was always looking around, wondering. And as well, every time I went to the pool, there was this incredible temptation to say, man, easy money. And I kept stealing. And it changed my whole experience going to the pool. It was no longer carefree with my buddies. It was a grieving. There was this weight to it that was ruined because of my lust for money, for candy, whatever it would get me. And it ruined it. A man once saw a bald eagle soaring in the circles. The circles began to tighten, and the man looked and saw this weasel on the ground. 
Suddenly, the eagle dropped out of the sky like a jet and caught the weasel by its talons. Amazingly, the eagle began to fly away, but the eagle was being wrestled with and eaten by the weasel as it clawed at its chest, as it grabbed its leg and bit its bones. And as the eagle flew up, and as that weasel fought back, the eagle plummeted to the ground, and the weasel went on its way. Getting what we want does not always work out the way we think it is or will. Sometimes the things we want will ruin us, just like the story of the eagle and just like the earlier story of Ali Hafid and the diamonds. When it comes to money and material possessions, too many of us, if we are completely honest, are owned by the things that we own. And so as I started, I want to close and ask you these three questions. What percentage of what you buy is what you need to what you want? What is it you wanted so bad it tempted you or moved you to get it in an unethical way or a way that put you in harm's way or your marriage or your family in a difficult spot and and caused all kinds of anxiety and harm? And how much have you sought God's approach to money and material possession? Because as we walk through this series, this is our goal, to look at God's money mandates for us. And so let's do this together. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that your word gives us full counsel on all of life. And it's because that ultimately you desire us to have peace, that you desire us to have godliness and contentment because it is great gain. And that it provides for us in how we are to live in a proper way that we can live with peace and contentment, with joy and security in this life. And so bless us as we come before you and your word. Rearrange us when it comes to our finances and our possessions and our approach to them. For your glory and for our good, in Jesus' name, amen.